This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have Dr. Matt Lambert. Dr. Matt Lambert brings more than 20 years of experience as a clinician, CMIO, and change leader in value-based care, ensuring that patients receive more comprehensive care and that payers and providers better capture the value of their services. He is a practicing board-certified emergency medicine provider who previously founded his own physician staffing company. Dr. Lambert was one of the founding members of Clinovations. During his time there, he served as part of the leadership team for several electronic health record implementations at the nation's largest public health system in New York City, the University of Washington in Seattle, Johns Hopkins, Barnabas Health, MedStar, and Broward Health. He is also the author of two healthcare books, Unrest Insured and Close to Change, Perspectives on Change in Healthcare for a Doctor, a Town, and a Country. Such a great background, and I'm most excited to hear about the work Dr. Lambert is doing currently as Chief Medical Officer of Curation Health. Curation Health was founded by a team of healthcare veterans and clinicians to help providers and health plans effectively navigate the transition from fee-for-service to value-based care. They have an advanced clinical decision support platform for value-based care that drives more accurate risk adjustment and improved quality program performance by curating relevant insights from disparate sources and delivering them in real time to clinicians and care teams. In our conversation today, we're gonna to talk about how clinicians can enjoy a streamlined, comprehensive clinical documentation process that enables better clinical and financial outcomes while simultaneously reducing clinical administrative burdens on providers. Let's go ahead and begin our discussion on physician workflow optimization and value-based care with Dr. Matt Lambert as he joins us in this week's Race to Value. Dr. Matt Lambert, welcome to Race to Value. We're so happy to have you today. Thank you so much, Eric. Uh, happy to be here. Matt, I, I just have to thank you for joining us on your birthday uh, of all places to be. This is, that's so awesome that, that you're sharing some time with us. Well, thank you. I, could, I can't think of a better place to spend my 50th birthday, right? Big birthday. Here I am with you guys. So really looking forward to it. You're too kind, my friend. Well, we are looking forward to this conversation as well. And I thought a great way to start our conversation would be to talk about physician workflow optimization. I just can't help but think how this movement to value-based care will necessitate a major paradigm in how physicians practice medicine. I mean, they can't be cowboys any longer in this wild west of fragmented, uncoordinated care delivery where providers really need IT only to get paid in fee-for-service. Instead, really, physicians are now, instead of cowboys, they need to be more like quarterbacks where they're communicating with an interdisciplinary care team. They're facilitating handoffs across the care ecosystem. And in this environment, the information technology, it's like the offensive line that protects the position, much like the quarterback in football. And all that said, I, I just can't help but think how this current generation of EHR systems, 
they don't really do the job because they, they're built on this fee-for-service chassis and they're unable to support prospective population-based payment. And it's just crazy, Matt, to think about all these providers that are out there embarking on a value-based care journey without an optimized tech-enabled clinical workflow to help them meet all the required documentation responsibilities. So I was really looking forward to having you on the podcast today. And I think because of your passion to drive sustainable changes in the physician adoption of value-based care without burdening the doctors with documentation. Can you explain why providers should be considering advanced clinical decision support platforms to optimize clinical workflows for both value-based care and revenue integrity for risk adjustment payment? How can the next generation of information technologies coexist with EHR systems to better curate actionable insights and eliminate all that noisy data that providers are typically accustomed to in a non-optimized clinical workflow? Eric, great question. And I love the football analogy. And we could probably bore the listeners with football analogies for the entire podcast. I, I, I often use the offensive line analogy when you have a process, right? And the process is broken. It's very rarely is it broken at one place. It's it's usually busted at, at several different places. And just like the, you know, if, if you're trying to improve performance, I mean, when your team's really struggling, it's usually the O-line, right? And so if each step or each five in the process, if we're using the continuing with the offensive line, can, can be approved a little bit, then you produce a much better outcome. And then wrapping that into the, the team concept, you really hit on the, the Cowboys to quarterbacks piece around providers. And that's not how we were really trained at all. So that's a big, just to start thinking that way, to start behaving that way, to start leading that way, especially through transition is really important. And that's going to have to to come at the residency level. We're so tied to our training that we, that we carry throughout our career. So most of us were trained to an EM output and most electronic health workers are configured for an EM output. So at its very core, what we're asking providers to do is to do something they weren't trained to do with a tool that wasn't designed to do it. And it's going to take a lot of change. A lot of EHR companies, and we spent a lot of time at Curation Health, but also in my previous life as a health system CMIO and with the advisory board and clinicians here in DC, spent a lot of time with electronic health records. And some of them are changing. Some of them are reinvesting in their product. Some of them are reinvesting in APIs that make it easier to do this. But quite frankly, a lot of them still aren't. And so, so you're still stuck in a pretty rigid fee-for-service operating model while you're trying to do something different. So whenever we can integrate with that or through an API or get in, into the workflow in a reasonable way, an easy way, and curate down a lot of that noise down to something that's meaningful, i.e., this, this patient's in a value-based care program, what are the gap closures that we need to address here? What risk model maps to this program? Which version are we on? Have you updated that? A good use of AI is keeping initiatives up to date with whatever changes are coming from CMS. That's a really good way to decrease cognitive load for providers. So we do all that before the visit and then present really what we need to capture and make it easy for the providers to do that moving forward. So if the APIs are there and the investment is there, then there are a lot of opportunities to integrate to make it easier for providers. And I just, I can't emphasize enough that we have to make this as easy as possible for providers. At the end of the day, this isn't a data problem. This is a clinical workflow problem. And we need to make sure that we're presenting the most pertinent information to the providers in the most convenient way. Well, Matt, thanks for that response. Uh, you've really outlined a compelling case for why optimizing clinician workflow is important, thinking about improving quality, risk score capture, and the like. And, and these are the technology benefits that can be readily observed through measurement. However, there is another benefit that's a little more psychological than empirical in nature, which is the provider experience. The industry's readily embraced the IHI triple aim of lower per capita costs, improved quality outcomes, and better patient experience as a mantra for value-based care. But there's an equally important fourth aim that's been added, which is provider experience. And without happy and engaged providers, patient outcomes in a population health model will never really be actualized. And we know that today, burnout is a major problem with over half of physicians affected. According to a recent Harvard report, physician burnout's a, quote, a public health crisis that urgently demands action, unquote. Experts predict that if left unaddressed, it'll further erode mental health of doctors and radically undermine patient care. So when asked about the causes of their unhappiness, nearly all doctors agree on the source of the problem, which according to the Medscape National Physician Burnout and Suicide Report that came out last year, the surveyed physicians pointed out that uh, there are too many bureaucratic tasks as the number one reason for their cause of distress. And it was 20 percentage points higher than the number two reason. 
Can you discuss the issue of physician burnout and how it relates to your work in tech-enabled clinician workflow optimization? And how does Curation Health apply physician-level accountability and attention to detail when designing its technology solution? And finally, as the emergency medicine physician, what insights can you provide about burnout that may help those other physician listeners out there? Dan, thank you so much for the question. Very timely. And this has even come from someone who, when we saw this coming, and that was some, some colleagues in my network, saw that this, this move to technology was coming, I don't know, over a decade ago, we decided to embrace it. And having said that, of how you have to engage around technology and especially around regulations. When we focus on, on the regulations around the electronic health record, you know, we've attached regulations for certain behaviors tied to reimbursement. Let's be clear, we're, we're changing that a little bit with value-based care. It's not necessarily the volume of documentation that you need in the E&M world. It's more the specificity of documentation. All things don't have the same meaning. Matter of fact, in, in most risk models, about 55,000 ICD-10s have no value. It don't map to the model at all. But when you think of regulations, not only on, on how you have to construct your documentation around that, but the piece around the reporting that you have to do to prove that you're using it. And that's a legacy of the meaningful use era when the, the federal government uh, and the high-tech bill was, was essentially providing funds to practices and organizations to adopt electronic health record technology that they approved. And then they wanted to report that you were using the money on what, what you said you were using it for. And there were a few egregious cases of, of fraud, which were appropriately punished. But most of us, most in this space, the technology is a part of our business now. And I think if we can cut some regulations on reporting how much I'm actually using it or how we're using it, I would really like to see that go away in, fu in future initiatives. So that allows us to kind of focus more on, on how the providers are using the EMR to document the care they're providing and to, and to find data in that. And it's interesting that the, the term physician accountability and attention to detail is, again, something that we've had with us. I mean, that's really what the CMIO spot came from. Uh, the CMIO role is the bridge, is the translator between the clinical world and the technical world. And let's be clear, there are no two different minds in healthcare than the software developer and, and the clinician. And so just providing that attention to detail and accountability that we provide to one another when we're a part of a care team caring for patients is something that, that's just been a, a mantra of mine and ours for the entire time. And that's why we always focus on minimizing false positives. A lot of NLP solutions lob a lot of data and a lot of it is wrong at providers. You have to maximize the integration. This has to, to be at the right place at the right time in the workflow for providers to work on it. And again, we, we at least at Curation Health, try to avoid a lot of forced tracking, a lot of hard stops, a lot of uh, things that inhibit a provider workflow if the information is good enough, if the information makes clinical sense, if the information is useful, then they're going to use it. If it's not, they're not. So we try to focus on the quality of the information and in anything that we're doing when it comes to technology and workflow. And then finally, on personal burnout, you know, I've burned out clinically a couple of times over a 25-year emergency medicine career. And that was one of the things that kind of led me to expand my skills or diversify the way I engage with, with healthcare and, and, and take care of patients. What I do when I'm, when I'm doing anything in informatics or anything in technology, I really feel like I'm taking care of patients at scale. And using technology to do that. Uh, and then there's also the old saying in medicine, see one, do one, teach one. And so by embracing technology and, and, and seeing what we can get out of it, I really feel like I'm helping my physician colleagues by seeing one, doing one, and teaching one. So again, I've burned out, and this has been a challenging year and a half, and I think we might talk about that a little bit later, but anything that we can do to improve the experience for our provider colleagues, it was funny, around this time last year, you got a, just walking into the store wearing your scrubs, you were getting thanks. That has since moved on, and we're back to some of the general or historic expectations that we have of our providers. But if you have a moment to thank one, please do. If you have a loved one in your life, take a moment and thank them and encourage them to do whatever they need to do to care for others. Well, Matt, your comments on physician burnout really resonate with me, and it's good for us all to be mindful of just out in the community, how we look at doctors and, and treat medical professionals. And I love what you guys are doing at Curation with really thinking about the physician experience and how that ultimately can translate by optimizing their workflow into better patient outcomes. And there was something else you talked about with, like, there can never be a wider gap than the software developer and the physician. And it seems like, you know, technology companies really have to integrate the physician perspective into requirements when building solutions. And for a, a tool like yours, that's point of care solution. I mean, really simplicity is that ultimate form of sophistication 
where you have to be able to bubble up those actionable insights that are going to be most impactful in managing a patient and and getting the, the cost and quality outcomes. And can't help but think of the times when I was an ACO executive and I, I just, I learned this early on. I mean, you have to be very laser focused on a population health playbook that's exquisitely designed for outcomes that are achievable. I mean, it's almost like you're picking the low hanging fruit instead of trying to boil the ocean, if you want to use a, a, a cheesy cliche, but the most successful organizations that I've learned and working with over the last few years that are going to be really successful in value-based care are those that have really good engaged physicians. And, you know, as leaders of these networks, you have to get their, the physician mind share. And I just been thinking about how that's difficult when there's so many solutions out there that are providing more data. It's sometimes less is more in terms of being able to uh, pivot an organization of value and getting them to focus on re really what's most important. That's what I, I, what I really connected with what you guys are doing. There's such an artful design and the way that you've developed an ambulatory clinical documentation solution that's really supporting quality and risk adjustment and curating that data in a way that really maximizes that signal to noise ratio. And it provides ultimately a better experience for the end user and, you know, of course, better outcomes. You mentioned this earlier, but curation uses AI machine learning and NLP to quickly identify those hierarchical condition categories, as well as the undocumented chronic conditions and undetected care gaps. And I was hoping maybe you could explain for our listeners how curation is able to fuse that EHR and the claims data and really apply, you know, your clinical and quality program agnostic rules to deliver those insights at the point of care. And if you can, can you share maybe some of the results that you've had with clients that are using your solution and value-based payment programs? Yeah, absolutely, Eric. It's purpose-built for a risk adjustment and quality platform focused on, on provider usability. And again, focused on, uh, on the integration, focused on minimizing the false positives. And that gets us into the, the, the discussion around a pure NLP solution, pure AI solution, pure technology solutions. They often get evaluated very well in, in, in the market and with investors, but I'm always amazed when they try to enter the space without having really strong clinical leadership, not only on the technology side, but also on, on the ACO side. And you can tell pretty quick when someone, you know, has had a lot of clinical insight into, into what they're doing. And we're bullish on AI and on, on, on technology and in the future, but the current state of it right now is not ready for prime time without a validation step. So that's why, I, I, and, and Kevin Colton, our CEO, is, is very adamant around, about that as well. So we leverage as much technology as, as we can. We also feel um, that to have some of that validated prior to, and then marked ready for position is really a good way to gain efficiencies, not only at the point of care, but also for CDI teams, for, for clinical documentation integrity teams who are working to really help focus them on what information has more value than the other, or, or what quality uh, initiatives map to this particular one. So we use a lot of claims, especially for recapture, for things that have, have been claimed that have been uh, on the last reporting year and pulling those forward and asking the providers to recapture those as, as is needed in a value-based care world, which is really a pretty novel thing. Anyway, you know, a lot of this was driven off of the problem list and some of our previous efforts where we've created some HCC recapture tools were, were, were built off the problem list. And as a health system CMI, I can tell you about all the quote-unquote problems with the problem list. And if you know you have something good on the problem list, it gets recirculated. If you have something bad on the problem list, it, it gets recirculated. And we have a pretty good, a lot of experience and pretty good idea where a lot of this data lives within the electronic health. So looking for claims as the basis for recapture and then building on that with algorithms that really make a lot of clinical sense. So is there a lab value that has changed their clinical condition as the patient progresses in their disease state? That gets you, number one, you not only need to address clinically, but also you're allowed to capture the complexity of, of the patients that you're managing. Is there a radiology finding that changes the picture? And pull this forward to the provider at the point of care so they don't have to search all through the electronic health record to find it. NLP is focused, at least in, in our, the way we think of it, is we focus it on places that, number one, providers typically don't have time to go review, or number two, things that they weren't traditionally trained to document on. So wherever we can get discrete data, we will. But if, if we go searching documents, we're going to focus on discharge summaries for a new diagnosis. We're going to focus on radiology studies for some findings there that might map to the risk model, particularly HCC 108. We're also going to look for wound care notes or physical therapy notes because providers have, have always read those and, and maybe acted on it, but they didn't document it and chart it in a way 
that allowed you to get the complexity around that. And a good example is, a, you know, a G-tube. If you have a patient who's too ill to feed themselves for, for maybe cancer or for another or for whatever problem, that CPT code, that procedure code for when that G-tube was placed has value in a fee-for-service world, but has no place in a value-based care world. But if you ask the provider to say, hey, there's a Z code for this, there's a presence of a G-tube, go ahead and document it, that it's functioning well. And then that uh, all of a sudden gets you credit for managing the complexity for a patient who's sick enough to have a G-tube. So, so it's a kind of a combination of discrete data and um, non-discrete data presented in a way that really focuses on the risk model itself. And for those conditions that we need to be actively managing for the best outcome, but also get us credit for managing that complexity. I'll just talk about ranges a little bit, Eric, on, on what we've seen from provider partners around the country. We can expect to find a net new diagnosis in a range of every one to eight to one to 12 patients. So if we're going to average it out, we're say one out of 10 patients in your attributed lives, we're going to find a net new diagnosis one out of 10. We're also going to improve that number of recapture uh, by pulling those claims forward and asking the provider, reminding them to address them again each year. So we're going to improve your recapture. And then this gets into the RAF lift. We can see there's a lot of different ways that we measure this. We tend to do it per claim. We can see a 50% increase in RAF lift per claim, as well as a, an increase in the PMPM PM that's going to be anywhere from 18 uh, all the way up to the highest performer was $40 per member per month. So not only, again, focusing your care on things that have been proven to improve outcomes, but focusing on a RAF lift that's going to translate to a, a better performance on your ACO and, or whatever your value-based care program is. And, and then once you start to improve there, then that just allows you to consider using the team to engage patients in, in so many different ways. And some of them have a great margin, especially now when we start talking about a lot of the changes that have come from the public health emergency. If a standard office visit works good for one patient, that probably doesn't work for another who's has some mobility challenges and you know, maybe has some transportation challenges. And currently right now you can do a risk adjusted visit over, over FaceTime. So a lot of these folks, if they can FaceTime their grandkids, they can FaceTime a provider. Or I've also come, come to say, if you really start to thrive as an ACO or thrive in a value-based care solution, if a text message gets me the same clinical outcome as anything else I'm doing, then why would I do anything different? Why not send a text message reminder to a behavioral health patient to take their antipsychotics so they don't get into trouble? It costs nothing, and the return on that is significant. And so these are just all the things that you can do when you start to really embrace this model. And if I'm going to wrap this up, and I probably should, we see the most success in this in, in the provider organizations that embrace the model. And a part of embracing that model means either adjusting your technology stack or configuring or purchasing your technology stack as a chassis that can help you get from A to B. Matt, I appreciate your bringing up the risk adjustment and the importance of that. And it's, we know it's so important, especially thinking of Medicare Advantage plans and, and rightly so. And it's become such an important part of reflecting the burden of, of illness in a senior population to the highest level of specificity so that appropriate resource allocations can be made, both in terms of care management interventions, as well as premium dollars that flow through the plan to support these population health needs and efforts. Oftentimes, it feels like the dollars is the primary objective when talking or thinking about risk adjustment. But in value-based care, a better way to think about risk adjustment is that, as you're mentioning, that improved documentation leads to better care. And better care leads to improved outcomes and lower costs. And as a clinician, I'd like to get your take on how risk adjustment is positioned in the lexicon value. And I'm also interested in hearing about your perspective on how deferred care during the pandemic will lower risk scores and reduce Medicare Advantage reimbursement. So when we think about the anticipated gap in terms of both ambulatory care utilization to support RAF coding, but also patients being sicker because they deferred care, will the pandemic cause upstream problems in the future? How's it going to look next year with the allocation of premium dollars in MA plans? And how should providers be thinking about coding and documentation of long-term sequela related to COVID-19. My dear friend, Trenner Williams, is at Socially Determined. I worked with him there for a while, and we looked at ways to pull social determinants of health into healthcare. And to make it a not just a charitable part of it, but to, to make it an actionable way of doing it. And one of the things that we looked at was, you know, is there such a thing as a social risk score? And there are some based on zip code that they even use MA plans are adjusted on a zip code level anyway, to a certain extent, but it's really tough to get that to an individual level like we do with a clinical risk score. So I actually studied the origins of, of the risk adjustment model 
to try and figure out if that had a, a social application. And when I went back to 2004, when CMS was selecting this and the CMS HCC model, I guess, depending on your point of view and to your point about finances, it's either trying to eliminate patient selection and ACOs. So in other words, if, if I'm a payer or a pay provider, it's trying to minimize not enrolling certain patients or firing, quote unquote, certain patients who may be too risky. So that's one piece. And then the other side of it is when the commercial insurers wanted to get into Medicare Advantage, they said they knew they wanted to grow. Their shareholders were telling, telling them to grow. But they also went to CMS and said, we would love to insure those over 65, but we can't do it for the rates that you do. So we need a way to adjust that. So the risk model is ever changing as it gets more and more data. But, you know, it's interesting. It's based on specificity of certain chronic conditions and not necessarily a volume of claims. So we come out of 2020, we come into 21, and I started getting questions about what do we think COVID is going to do for the future of value-based care? And my answer back then was, I don't know. Let me think about it a little bit. And that's refined over the, over the last couple of months to where I think it's really going to accelerate the adoption of value-based care. And I'm just going to do a shameless plug here real quick. That was what I put on, into the his, his talk piece about about the differences between a fee-for-service and episodic care or a subscription model, because that's really what we're talking about with per member per month is a, it's a subscription model. So we come out of 2020 with the Medicare Advantage plans sitting very well because they had collected their subscription based on expected outcomes and costs. And the providers found themselves limping out of the year because of a decrease in utilization and a suspension for a while last spring of elective cases, which are the, the two biggest drivers for any health system are their elective cases and their ambulatory revenue. So they've come out of that in a tough position. And I think that's going to just drive them more and more to look at value-based care models, to look at a subscription model, to help them plan long-term. Because that's really one of the things that's really preventing a pivot to value-based care is most health systems are dependent on heads and beds running at a pretty small margin and need that immediate revenue coming in before they do that. Most organizations aren't quite mature enough to make a bet that's going to pay off 18 months from now. So as we go into that, I, again, I think it'll accelerate that. But deferred care is, is going to be a real thing. And I'm speaking now anecdotally about some things I've seen uh, working clinically. I've seen, especially cancer patients, present later than they have in my previous experience. And they've been deferring. So that tumor is not an isolated tumor. It's a metastatic tumor. Or I had one unfortunate gentleman who was in his 50s, was very wary of COVID and stayed away from a lot of treatment and actually had his lung tumor erode into an artery. And he expired right there in front of me. We just really gave him some oxygen and some morphine and kept him comfortable. So that was an extreme case of deferred care. But, but we're certainly going to see that. And the Medicare Advantage plans would be, I think it would be very foolish for them not to anticipate some increased costs on the deferred care piece. I don't think we're going to see a drop in reimbursement going forward because again, right now you can do a risk-adjusted visit over FaceTime. Uh, there's even a bill in the house right now where it says you can even risk adjust over the telephone. I haven't seen exactly how far that's gone, but a lot of our uh, MA plan partners, and as we help them with their strategy and we help them execute that, they've reached out to those patients early in the year, which is pretty typical. And they're capturing those chronic conditions. Uh, again, the volume of claims isn't necessarily what's, what gets measured. It's the specificity of those chronic conditions. I think that we'll, that we'll see a change in, in outcomes based on deferred care, but I don't think we'll see a big drop in their subscription model revenue because they're still capturing those clinical conditions going forward. Switching now to COVID, I think this experience and our health system, when you look back and when I was uh, researching the book, Unrest Insured, it really just... It was kind of a fascinating journey back through the history of, of, of healthcare payment in this country. It even took all the way back to um, 1911 to the UK to uh, the National Insurance Act of 1911. And, and there was a, on both sides of the Atlantic, there was a lot of movement for, for finding a better way to do this. And, and the UK went one way and, and we obviously went another way here. But I was just amazed at how reactionary our healthcare system has been over time, whether it be to some of the incentives that came around World War II, whether that came to how they were incentivized to do procedures based on the DRG model. So I would expect us, I, actually, I would be surprised if we don't have a big reaction to our model based on COVID. With COVID itself, they added the U code so you could diagnose and so you could you could track the code of coronavirus itself. And there are some, if you look at the risk model, as it currently states, there are some Infectious diseases in there, they're, they're mostly for those that apply to the chronically immunocompromised or to the you know, HIV patients. So I don't know where we're going to fit that in, how that might apply to COVID as an acute illness. Post-viral syndrome is well documented, especially in things like mono. 
that is not in the current risk model. So I'll be surprised if COVID long hauler or COVID sequela comes in. It might be because again, those patients have interacted with the healthcare system a lot and are and have been sick for quite some time. If a patient has been unfortunate enough to be on a ventilator for a while and has a trach breathing tube uh, into their neck that helps them get through a period of months, then that already maps to the risk model. So again, you can capture some sequela codes with it. And then the other piece, DVTs and pulmonary embolism. For whatever reason, uh, uh, coronavirus makes you more likely to have a clot. Very different from some of the J&J vaccine discussion that's going on. So these patients, who, and I've seen a couple who had, who had some significant blood clots in their lungs, you know, about a week or two after their acute coronavirus. So, so those patients who have long going need for care based on, based on blood clots for various years caused by COVID, that already maps to the risk model. So I think we'll see a, a few adjustments once we get enough chance for the data to fit in. But again, it's anyone's guess, I think, right now for what the long-term effects of COVID might be uh, Medicare Advantage and risk adjustment. Well, Matt, I wanted to ask you also about physician adoption of technology tools. It seems like a lot of physicians are leery of newfangled technology solutions in the medical space. I know a lot of that has to do with their prior experience with the HRs, and it's so contrary to how they embrace technology in their personal life. I mean, assuredly, you know, most physicians have the latest and greatest smartphone, wearable device, entertainment system at home. And I think to illustrate this point of technology aversion, I reflect back on what a mentor once told me when I was managing medical practices. You know, he said the surest way to get fired as a medical practice executive is to change the physician comp model, embezzle money, or implement an EMR system. And your solution obviously is so much different than an EMR. I mean, you're pushing new levers to get better outcomes at a more effective, better price point. And that's without all the additional administrative burdens to already robust workloads in the physician space. However, you still have to convince the doctors that they really have a workflow problem, not a technology problem. I think about when I was in grad school, hearing about that iron triangle of healthcare access, cost, and quality. And there's this saying, you can only have two out of three. And I think what you're proposing potentially might be if we're truly trying to get the quadruple aim for value-based care, which includes that provider experience, that actually is achievable. I mean, obviously there's not a holy grail solution, but you can have improved workflow, better quality of life, better patient outcomes, and lower costs. But you know, of course, you have to implement in a way that gets past a lot of that resistance and friction that you have in the physician space. So Matt, I wanted to ask you just about how do you ensure implementation success of technology solutions like yours? Can you talk about maybe the importance of having a physician champion serving as a conduit with the administration and the clinicians on the front lines? And also, what would you tell some of the skeptics out there who assign hype cycle to all these new technologies and say it's a bunch of high expectations, but ultimately they aren't going to be translated into a transformational redesign of care delivery? What would you say to them in terms of tech enablement at the point of care? Yeah, yeah. Great question. Eric Neal, CIO at the University of Washington, says, there are no old and bold CIOs. So Eric, to your point about the quickest way to, to get removed, again, the comp model, bezel, or change technology. And, and certainly the, the disruption, you could see it all around the country that an EHR implementation causes. But we learned so much from doing a lot of those and sometimes being that interim leader and that interim physician leader. That we've we've built on all those lessons learned as we've created Curation Health, and and I, and I agree to your point around you know providers probably have the slickest stuff in their homes, and, and when you compare the user interface of their video games or their kids' video games to an electronic health record, that's a pretty big gap. And one of the unintended consequences of adapting new technology from a meaningful use bill is we incentivize the adoption of platforms certified technology that came as a platform. So there were a lot of niche products that, quite frankly, some of them had better point of care functionality, let's say for an oncologist or for an ophthalmologist or for a radiologist. And, and it's taken Epic a lot of time to invest in their different applications, you know, which are all cr creatively named like Radiant or Cupid to really get to that level of functionality. So it's an iterative process in the way that we're doing it. And eventually it will get to that level of sophistication and what were user interfaces that we're seeing in other places. But, but it also turns out that healthcare is pretty hard to digitize uh, and, there, and there's a lot of nuance. And when I don't think we're ever going to see more than the 80, you know, the Pareto principle just falls all over healthcare and technology. 
on that 80% of this can probably be automated, but there are 20% of the time when we're, when you just can't because of the, you know, the, some of the nuances of either provider behavior or patient or member behavior. And the software itself, it's interesting, you get back to this physician level accountability and attention to detail. You know, the software is created by people and people have their flaws and make mistakes. But when you compare that to the margin of error in other parts of our lives compared to the margin of error when you're doing especially acute care or surgery, that's a gap. That is a noticeable gap that I've personally seen in different aspects of my career. And so how do you manage that is the physician leader. Again, someone who is willing to embrace change, embrace something new, embrace the differences. There's sometimes in, in healthcare where you get one chance to get it right. That's almost never the chance in healthcare software development. There's always a, an opportunity to refine it, an opportunity to make it better. There's no substitute there for having a physician leader who's embraced this and will help push it forward. And, and very often, too, it, it's best to find a physician leader who has a project that they want to do and needs needs some help to get there. So let's think of a department chairman who would like to do a special research project, and we can set that up in a way that allows us to take a step forward with our technology. That's always a really good place where you look for synergies across a big health system to move things forward. The idea that technology will save us, I love it, uh, and it will eventually. But again, it's a very iterative process and will uh, improve over time. It's just not there just yet. Again, the, the reason why we continually evolve our technology and continually evolve our integrations, but we have a best product when we have that validated by CDI prior to presenting it to the physician. Fascinated by just stuff kind of hot off the compresses the Microsoft nuance relationship that was just announced. Love the concept of voice recognition and voice to text and, and applying that. I know when I'm on my Gmail account, sending an email, Google's getting really good at finishing my sentences for me. I think they're moving ahead really quick just because of the volume of repetitions that, that they've had and the simplicity of my emails versus my, some of my medical documentation. It'll be interesting to see how that works. But still, when you think of simply recording the conversation or recording what the provider says, doesn't necessarily get you any value in either an E&M world or a value-based care world. And I think it would be just as awkward for a provider to be, quote unquote, speaking to Alexa about their physical findings while they're in front of a patient as it would be to enter something after the visit in, into Epic in a more conventional way. So so it's going to it's going to be I think it's going to be a really good use case to make sure that they're doing it thoughtfully. And again, just, you know, that gets a lot of attention from speculators and that gets a lot of attention from investors. But we've seen a lot of large traditional IT organizations, Google, Microsoft, try to get into healthcare before and not do very well. And I think it's because of a real lack of a clinical laser focus on exactly what they're trying to build. And then lastly, when it comes to how could the practice out there listening who's trying to make this transition, what might you be able to do now uh, in a way that's going to get you forward with value-based care? And, you know, you do get what you pay for. Not only is my EHR reinvesting in its product, is it reinvesting to match whatever initiatives might be coming here out of D.C.? But is it also going to support customer service and is it going to be able to support maybe a custom, you know, API for something that I want to do? If you are going to minimize your investment in your technology, you're going to minimize your return, and therefore you're going to minimize your transition to value-based care. So I would, I would encourage provider organizations to be thoughtful about what they're doing, especially if you're growing. You know, just acquiring new practices and getting bigger and getting more volume work great in a fee-for-service world, but can't tell you how many ambulatory provider organizations, you know, spread out a couple of different states and on three or four different EMRs, I can't tell you what a challenge it is for them to get a population level of where they are with quality and risk. So think about that when, you, when you're investing in your IT infrastructure. Matt, you've given us some important things to think about as we consider the future state of technology and value-based care. And, and as we're thinking about the shifting landscape, I'd also like to discuss the prospective payment for these healthcare services and these shifts that are coming. During the pandemic, providers found themselves immensely challenged by diminished fee-for-service revenue from decreased volume. On the other hand, payer organizations were well-poised for the coming years, primarily because their revenue has remained consistent since people have continued paying their monthly health insurance premiums during that pandemic. It's quite ironic that providers find themselves behind the payers in recurring revenue or subscription revenue models, since that is what hospitals were seeking when they invented health insurance almost 100 years ago. And in your book that you referenced earlier, Unrest Insured, you wrote about this and discussed how Blue Cross was founded by a hospital executive seeking a per member per month reimbursement model and negotiated a deal with a teacher's union 
that was 50 cents a month payment in exchange for 21 days of hospitalization annually. We've definitely seen a divergence in the last 90 years from then, but that may be corrected by the accelerated pace of change brought on by this past year of the pandemic. And this is change that may bring us back to the original intent of health insurance. As a clinician, what has COVID-19 taught you about the broken nature of healthcare finance and care delivery? And what are your thoughts about health plans that are sitting on record profits right now due to sharp declines in elective care during the pandemic that have reduced healthcare expenditures and contributed to earnings? In the scenario of these health plans with lower medical loss ratios, having unspent premiums generating windfalls, should there be a formal mechanism perhaps to put this money back into the provider community for advancing value-based care? Yeah, Dan, great question. And thank you for referencing my stuff, not only the book, but some of the HisTalk pieces that I put out. I'm going to start individually as a clinician, what I've witnessed and learned. Then I'm going to talk, just go a little bit deeper on the subscription model, the per member per month and, and the history of it, and then focus on are there going to be any formal mechanisms? So I was really thinking a lot about that question when I was preparing for the for our podcast. And I hate to compare this pandemic to the last one too much because there are significant differences between the flu and between the coronavirus. But we really didn't have a formalized healthcare system at all in 1918, the last time we had a pandemic. There were a lot of a lot of hospitals, more than there are now. There were over 7,000 7, of them. Most of them were small. They were almost all charity. Unions had sick funds. So if you got sick, your coworkers would give you money, but it wasn't for medical bills. It was for paying rent and buying groceries. And so there was no real connection to the healthcare system with that. So this has been a new experience comparing to uh, seeing how our current healthcare system and how it's evolved, how that hands under a pandemic. And we've learned that it's remarkably dependent on episodes of care, remarkably dependent on people getting sick and seeking care, and less so on, on how do we keep people well. So our system is not done very well. I don't think anyone should be surprised. It's not doing something well that it really wasn't designed for. And that goes back to 1929, goes back to Baylor. They were having revenue challenges even all the way back then. And to the, the Baylor model, which became Blue Cross, the administrator reached out to his network, which is, I think, something that we can all relate to. And we uh, made an arrangement with an employer. You know, that way I can only talk to the head of HR. I don't have to talk to 20,000 employees and made a deal for 50 cents a month. You got guaranteed 21 days in the hospital if you needed it. And so that obviously incentivized, you know, inpatient care. And, you know, that's why you could still get admitted to the hospital for exhaustion, which you haven't been able to do that since the, the DRGs and, and CMS regulations came in. But really what they were doing, and to use the terminology of today, it was a provider who formed their own payment plan that applied to a per member per month fee to a selected population. And that sounds a whole lot like how we describe what, what we're trying to do now. And between 1929 and 2020, we had a lot of advances, thank goodness, in, in care and a lot of things that pushed us out of the hospital and not in. So, you know, day surgery or outpatient care. Medical billing got really tricky as far as the way it was codified and complex and different process for Medicare and for Medicaid, for Medicare Advantage, different process for all the, all the commercial payers. And then the two grew apart to where the payers were, were much more judicious in what they were paying for what conditions or procedures. I mean, think about it. From 65 to 95, the only rule for billing for Medicare was your, quote, usual and customary rate, unquote. And the mid-90s, when, when this became attached to codified, is, when, is when, when things really got pretty tricky. I just think it's this is what we were trying to do for a lot of the similar reasons, you know, 100 years ago is what we're trying to do now. And that's just one of the reasons why I think it, it might accelerate the care going forward. It allows you to, that subscription model allows you to plan farther ahead. It allows you to weather the unknowns a lot easier. And again, once we can get out of the, the mindset and the process of I have to do this to get $74 for 99213, then we can engage patients in a care team way that is a lot more engaging and a lot more creative. And I think we're going to find will give us better outcomes for lower costs. What we have done well is we've responded to the pandemic with deregulation. Seema Verma did just a, a really outstanding job and showed a lot of understanding of the current weaknesses of, of the model and the best way to knock a lot of those barriers down. The spirit of deregulation really fit well with the previous administration. And you can deregulate a whole lot faster than you can, than you can regulate. So that's why I, I'll be surprised if we can get it together 
enough to look at, is there a formal program where we might pay some of this back? I think it'll just all come from the feds and we'll continue these supplemental payments or to help health systems stay afloat. I don't think we're going to get the Biden administrations on the record of saying that, that they're all in on value-based care. When you talk about going all in on value-based care, the Medicare Advantage plans are, are so much farther ahead and well-aligned and well-incentivized than any other place of value-based care. I think that only means that Medicare Advantage is going to grow. If we, if we start to make a push toward, towards value-based care. So I, I'll be surprised if there are any formal mechanisms that will help transfer some of this money. I think if we're going to see a shift, it's going to come from that provider organization say, yeah, we need a better way or we need a different way to move forward. Well, Matt, as we uh, think about moving forward in this uh, race to value, I also wanted to ask you about primary care since it's so foundational to what we're trying to accomplish in, in our industry. And, you know, they're just really not in good shape right now. I mean, it seems like a lot of the PCPs are overwhelmed and downtrodden, perhaps even feeling defeated. I mean, lack of uh, workflow optimization, as we discussed earlier, is a, definitely a big driver of provider dissatisfaction. And uh, I can't uh, help but think about that study that came out a few years ago that said it, for an average primary care physician, it would take him or her 21.7 hours a day to do absolutely everything required to address patient care and all the documentation required to manage the business of their medical practice. And so all that was going on. And then COVID happens, boom, you know, so you're, you're dealing with almost a perfect storm right now. And also a lot of the physician deaths that we've seen with COVID, about 27% have come out of the primary care practices because they were lacking PPE and they were at the first point of care early on in the pandemic. So needless to say, it, it seems like primary care is just repeatedly neglected and marginalized. And it's just such a big issue. And as we look to transition to value-based care, I just hope that we can figure that out. And since they are their heart and soul of this movement and, and, you know, and what gives me hope is what you guys are trying to do and in providing tech enablement and workflow optimization. I mean, it's a very big opportunity and if you're able to curate actionable insights at the point of care, it could be a piece of the puzzle really to help them regain trust in the system. So that's one part of it, of course. But then there's this other part, which I think is equally, if not more important, and that's the the storytelling that goes along with that. Stories have been shown to really revitalize communities of people, including the medical community. And for all those PCPs out there that are listening to you on this podcast, what hope would you provide them about the opportunity that we have to fundamentally transform care delivery for value-based care and in recognizing the power of the story to create change, what would you tell these PCPs that are really trying to think about a brighter tomorrow in their profession and advance to value-based care? Yeah, Eric, great question. Well stated. I think I'll start, as always, with the people. We can talk about process and we can talk about technology, but if you don't start with the people, you're, you're going to fall short every time. Let's just focus on COVID. Challenging to say the least, the constant change has been exhausting for the public for in general, but especially on the care delivery side, primary care included. So, you know, show up to work every day and there's a new process or a new test or, or a new process to, to test someone, new process to find a PPE. You know, I'm sure primary care colleagues were going off label as I was to change gloves in between every encounter, but I wore the mask and wore the gown until it basically failed. And then I would get another, you know, and then there's this interesting piece around, I don't think we had as much support when it came to, you know, maybe asking questions about the validity of, of the virus or maybe suppressing some of the truth or suppressing some of the numbers around it. And then that's also going into the whole denial piece of a lot of this, you know, I've had my own examples with COVID positive patient who form their diagnosis and they just say no, or the family members and some of their expectations, especially early on around treatments that they might receive were just not available widespread. And then now you get the movement around denying the vaccine. I had a patient uh, in her forties, bad lung, chronic lung problem on oxygen already. When I was asking about the vaccine, she said she wasn't going to get it because she didn't believe in it. And I was just like, you should have been one of the first ones available to do that. And all of that has placed an unbelievable toll on, on all providers and certainly primary care providers as well. And that's just something that we're going to have to work through as a society, really, quite frankly. 
So, you know, I, I think as we come out of this as a society, but also come out of it as a specifically on primary care, focus on what drew it to you in, in the beginning and focus on that team aspect and the importance of that in the healthcare community, but in the community at large. And 21 hours a day, my goodness gracious, you know, that certainly explains why the standalone primary care provider just doesn't exist anymore, right? Why they've all decided to seek shelter and, and become employed as part of a big health system because you just can't manage all of that administrative burden and all that extra work on your own. And, and it's easier to become a, a, a part of a big system where you can just kind of focus on, on practicing medicine and knowing that, you know, you're going to have some protection there, but you're also going to have to follow the incentives of the health system. And again, and just pulling it back to, we all behave the way we're incentivized to behave. And we've been incentivized by the fee-for-service model or the recurrence model to do stuff instead of providing holistic care and engaging patients ways that really drive outcomes and that leverage a team. And that, again, uh, most of these are going to be things that drive the most outcomes are going to be relatively inexpensive and have each member of the team working at the top of their license. And an interesting part, too, we seem to really thrive in our relationships and our provider partners is this concept of, of in-home primary care. So when you think about it, it's number one, getting outside of the hospital. Number two, engaging patients where they are. Number three, fully embraces risk, right? So, you know, why is Alabama good at football? Because it's important and they invest in it. So our home-based primary care partners, they fully embrace the at-risk model. It's part of the provider comp model, the primary care comp model that they're going to work a certain way. They make allowances for it with their scheduling, right? So a one hour, sometimes even 90 minute in-home primary care visits are really allowing you to develop a relationship, number one. Number two, you learn so much more about being in a patient's home than you ever would in any other way about their barriers to health. But three, it's also a signal from your employer that we're going to incentivize you in a certain way, and we're going to make allowances in the way you work for it, instead of just trying to cram two more 15-minute visits maybe into your panel when you're working the other way. So when I think of shifting incentives to a value-based model, I think of ways that we can empower our primary care providers to really you know, embrace what they got into this for in the beginning and to help incentivize to carry on and also incentivize to get more folks to go into this space as opposed to some of the other subspecialties that are more driven off of procedurals that don't necessarily correlate exactly to outcomes. Matt, let's talk some more about these incentives that you're bringing up and what leadership teams within provider organizations need to do to drive the value-based care and getting physicians to adopt the behaviors that align with that value-based care strategy. We know that physicians are always being asked to do, add more to their plates, and especially we saw this during the pandemic. And if leadership teams want physicians to adopt new behaviors that align with the strategy of value-based care, they've really got to be thoughtful about the incentive structure design. And to make value-based care a new normal in healthcare, it really requires, again, providers to change behaviors, overcome previous bias and challenges, become more engaged and contribute to the development of new payment models, and, and to see the benefits of taking on additional financial risk. If providers and payers want physicians to change, they need to really make clear both a human and a financial case for this pivot. As a physician executive and leader in value-based care, how do you recommend that organizations engage physicians in the compensation strategy to ensure that there's buy-in at the highest levels of clinical leadership. And beyond incentivizing for cost savings and clinical quality, have you seen comp structures that have been successful with technology adoption, especially with ACOs when we think of those that are comprised of many disparate independent practices? Yeah, great questions all, Dan. So to your point of sharing risk, I often start these conversations by saying, let's be clear, what we're asking provider organizations to do is partially held responsible for the outcomes of their patients. If you say that another way, let's say we're asking teachers to be accountable for the performance of their students. That usually ends in a teacher strike because that is a significant thing that we're asking people to do. People have chosen a profession to change their behavior, to influence the behavior of others. So when I think about things that you can do or things that effective organizations do with this, is you've got to have a pretty bold executive leadership who's pretty secure in their position to try to lead an initiative that's going to bear a return a couple of years down the road. Not a lot of organizations are created that way. Not a lot of executives have that kind of financial support. Or I'll even say political support within a large organization to do that. So everything starts with leadership. 
And to have someone who's willing to embrace some of the risks around that is what you need. And the alternative is just keep doing what you're doing and hope for a new outcome, right? Which is the definition of insanity. So for me, it makes a natural sense to try something new. And, you know, I don't think there's a lot of disagreement on the, the lack of sustainability of our current system. So I think we need to try something new. Value-based care is the next logical step in my mind. So leadership always. This concept of investing in a team led by uh, clinician leadership where each person has a role to do something a little bit differently uh, on how they care for providers. Very often in emergency medicine, you'll hear, uh, you know, what brings you to the ER today? And, and the patient says, well, I called my doctor and they told me to come here. And you do your tests and you try to track down the provider and say, uh, yeah, you've, you've sent Mrs. Jones here. And he goes, he goes, no, I think Mrs. Jones called my office and someone, whoever answered the phone just told him to go to the emergency department. So that obviously that takes a very different behavior set on the part of the entire team, clinical and non-clinical included, to say, how can we accommodate this? Can we do an after hours telehealth visit? Do we have somewhere where we, where we can, do we have a telehealth service that's going 24 seven where we can refer you to? Um, you know, can a care manager reach out to you? You know, so it needs to have a team around it. The technology piece, again, has to be there. You need to invest as much as you can in technology in the right sort of way that's going to allow for a certain amount of information sharing and a certain amount of, of interactivity. And we've talked a lot about that, a lot about the information that, that you need to support a value-based care program and the way providers need to interact with one another, uh, whether that be just internal to your technology or whether that be a third-party association like a lot of the work that we do. And then finally, the third rail of this is provider comp. And just given the capped nature of ACOs, I don't know if we'll see a lot of this come out of the uh, ACO. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about Medicare Advantage and just the differences in risk tolerance that you would expect from the private sector versus the public sector. So you see comp models so far not done in a very sustainable way. And, and the, my favorite or slash least favorite is where if you act on a suspect condition from a big payer, then they'll compensate the provider directly for capturing a certain HCC. And I'm gonna get pretty specific here. Sometimes that has a $50 payment directly to the provider associated with it. And when you think that the lowest valued HCC is $600 per member per year, it's still a very favorable equation to the payer over the provider. And we purposely stay away from that at Curation Health. We focus solely on the per member per month or part of the subscription model around this. That way we can be part of the uh, equation and provide value to the team, but not ever adjust incentives to do more than is clinically appropriate to look for the best outcomes. So I think the future is going to be not per HEC capture, but it's going to be a, a, a part of this PM, PM incentive model based on the overall performance. And I, and I wish I could tell you uh, an equation based on number of providers and number of lives. That is a sweet spot, but I don't feel confident doing that right now. And we do it with, once we get to see the baseline, a little bit of what we think the performance is going to be, then we can make some recommendations around what that PMPM performance reimbursement might be. A lot of times provider organizations don't want to address that or don't want us to address that with their provider group. Uh, again, uh, just because of a lot of unknowns, and I don't think they want to commit to anything. It goes back to that level of having secure executive leadership around this. And there was an article in Health Affairs, I want to say it was two years ago, which probably means it was about four years ago, that, that talked about you can get 20% of your book of business in a value-based care contract and really not have to change behavior. But if you're going to embrace value-based care, then you need to get to 65% of your portfolio as part of a value-based care model, that's going to drive you to change your operations in a way that, that's more sustainable around this. So that's why we see a lot of places kind of stuck, right? At that 20% of their contracts are value-based care. They don't have to change their behavior. And a lot of times they are stuck on comp model and they are stuck on their technology infrastructure or their or their team on how they're going to do this. So again, I think, I think most of this is going to come focusing more on the MA side. And I think we'll see this Full risk primary care model will be the one that leads us to this. And I think maybe in a couple of years, we'll be able to come back on the show and, and say with confidence, this PM, PM incentive model makes a lot of sense, but we're still, at least me personally, and maybe and maybe there's some other folks who could, who could state that more confidently, but, but right now it's still pretty individual conversation based on the, on the ratio of providers to lives and based a lot on the type of value-based care contract you're in.
Well, Matt, I think you're right. The future is here, whether or not we realize it. And, you know, full risk value-based care is the movement. (laughs) I can't tell you how thankful we are to have you join us today to have this great conversation and on on your birthday. So we're especially honored. You know, as we wrap up today, I just wanted to ask you, maybe you could provide, you know, our listeners how to find you and, you know, how to learn more about Curation Health. Well, Eric, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I would say... um, that this isn't the only way I want to spend my birthday, but this is this is a good addition to, you know, having a nice dinner and some other things later on this evening. Uh, I think the first place to go would be our website, curationhealth.com, uh, and then learn more about our efforts there and, and look at our entire team from there. And then uh, got a, a really fantastic team that, that keeps me uh, engaged with opportunities like this one right here today. So you'll see a lot of things on, on Twitter at Matt Lambert MD, uh, and you'll see, of course, a lot of things on LinkedIn. So I, I think that would be um, the best places to start to reach out. My email itself, I'll go ahead and give that out here. It's mlambert at curationhealth.com. And I would love to uh, have some other conversations and uh, look for some opportunities where we can help the race to value.